no greater love than what? Than this. To lay down one's life for his friends. Can you all read that back to me? Go. Greater love. Come on, say it out loud. What kind of love? Greater love. Greater love. I like love. Every now and then, I make a very personal sacrifice, and I watch a lovey-dovey movie with Petraea. Usually, she falls asleep on it, and so I'm left to watch a lovey-dovey movie all by myself. But it's still fun, you know? I mean, who doesn't love, like, a lovey-dovey movie every now and then? <laughs> Just wish there was more shooting, a little bit of, you know, violence maybe every now and then, you know, stuff like that. But, you know, it's kind of interesting how our world is caught up with love. They're infatuated with infatuation. They just love love, you know. And uh, whether they're professing Christians or unbelievers, they still like these concepts of love. Um, it's just popular. And yet the Bible is very blunt in the way it describes what great love looks like. And I'm not even going to Paul's letter to the Corinthian church. We, we, I don't want to go there yet. I just want to talk in general terms. If God says, here's what great love looks like, and his description is, there is nothing greater than this kind of love. A love that lays its life down for their friends. Wow. Wow. I heard this last week of two Marines um, who, you know, served together, and then their ways parted. And uh, years and years later, on Facebook, one Marine saw that his other friend, his other veteran, needed a kidney transplant or he would die. And so he quickly got himself tested to see if he was a match and was a match and did everything he could and he went over there and he gave him his kidney. And when they asked this Marine, he said, why, why would, what, what was your motivation? He goes, well, you know, we'll never leave an, a fellow brother behind. I figure I got two. I'm going to give him one. There's no even question in my mind. And I thought, that's just beautiful. And you know what? I don't even have to be a Christian to like that. That's just wonderful. That's just a kidney. That seems pretty big for me. I even thought to myself, who would I give a kidney to? I don't know if I'd give a kidney to anybody. So, I mean, I kind of like both my kidneys. I'm figuring I drink enough coffee, I might destroy one of them. So I might need a backup, you know? I, said, I, don't, I don't know if I can afford to give, you know, one of them away. I mean, that's how selfish I am. And, uh, and yet here is an example of someone giving a kidney to another person. And this isn't really that foreign to our minds. We hear of people making these elaborate donations of an organ like that and uh, but it'd be totally different than donating a heart. <laughs> I need a heart transplant. I'll let you use mine. <laughs> Whoa, that changes the whole concept, doesn't it? There are a lot of different scenarios I can think of where someone would lay their life down for someone. But the Bible is unique. And so I want to find out what the Bible teaches about loving in this sacrificial way. 
And so I've been pondering this idea because I was thinking about being selfless and dying to self and killing that selfishness and that that self-life. And then the Lord kept drawing me more and more to what does sacrificial love look like? And I, I came to my notes and I wrote down all my initial thoughts and and then I realized in the study process that I was um, putting my ideas of sacrificial love into Scripture instead of just letting God teach me about sacrificial love. So then I went back to John 15, and I'm sitting here going, I don't have to make it that complicated. It really is this simple. There isn't any kind of greater love than one that just lays his life down for another. And the greatest example of that is Jesus laying his life down, not for friends, but for his enemies who didn't even know him. And so I begin to say, how do I combine that idea of sacrifice, which means to slaughter, which is the reason why we call altars altars. It's a place of slaughtering. And how come slaughtering and places of slaughtering are such an integral part to our devotion, our expression of love and worship to God. But not just to God, any God, small g's. In the Bible, it references countless examples of people making slaughters, sacrifices to their deity of choice, their idol that they worship, and at altars, places of slaughtering, and so that whole context of making a sacrifice to communicate or express a, a degree of value and worth that someone is ascribing to their idol is very common in Scripture. And so if I'm asking the Lord to teach me what sacrificial love looks like, he starts by showing me in the Bible, something living must die. And something living must die for very specific reasons. And if you tweak those, you change the whole context of why it was being sacrificed. Let me describe it in this way. The three things I want to highlight are the cost, the heart, and the will. I can't do three like that. My fingers don't work now. The will. The cost the heart, and the will. I separate the heart and the will intentionally for this conversation. And the reason being is because if we are to sacrifice or slaughter something living and we're to do it in the expression of love of another, if I were to tweak any of these things, it changes the whole dynamic of sacrificial love. For instance, if I remove personal cost, there is no sacrifice that I'm paying for or that is affecting me. There's no skin in the game. There's nothing that, that gives value. And so there has to be a personal cost or it changes the vibe. The heart, if I remove a love motivation from this whole picture of sacrificial love, and there is no love motivation, then suddenly it changes the whole concept of sacrificial love. And if it's not that, overlapping a little bit, what about our will? If we don't consciously choose, if you as an individual aren't willing or choosing to make this 
loving, costly sacrifice, then it changes that sacrificial love also. Because if there is no greater love than one who lays his life down for another, what if he didn't want to, but his life was laid down? It's not that love, is it? What if it wasn't out of an adoration or an affection? Well, that's definitely something different. And what if it's not his life? What if he's laying down someone else's life? Well, that's not a sacrifice either. So the cost, the heart, and the will are very important. I think um, in my own life, it comes right into my marriage relationship. In Paul's letter to Ephesians, it says it very plainly. He says, husbands, you're supposed to love your wives as Christ loved the church and lay his, his life down for them, right? So I think this whole idea of cost, heart, and will is easy to see in a relationship like a marriage, because if either one of us, if my wife right there or if myself, are not willing to pay the cost, it's not going to be a good relationship. If either one of us are not in this relationship and making sacrifices out of affection for one another, it's going to change the dynamic. It'll be a business transaction. That's not good either. And if either one of us is doing this out of some other reason than willful choice then that changes the whole dynamic of the relationship, doesn't it? So now let's shift from that loving relationship like this and let me put it in the context of your relationship with the Lord. Because if your relationship with the Lord is not involving a cost, your heart and your will, then your relationship with God is not sacrificial love. And if it's not sacrificially loving, there isn't worship going on. That doesn't mean you're not singing. That doesn't mean you're not attending church or those things. But there has to be a sacrifice. And that changes a lot. So let's talk about the cost. All right. As we go through these three things, the cost, the heart, and the will, let's talk about the cost. In uh, David's life, 2 Samuel 24, verse 24, he says a phrase that I love, and I'm going to steal it for today. As he is beseeching God to turn things around because of so much death and sickness for his own sins, I mean, he is really tormented over the many, many lives that are cost from him rebelling against God, basically. And, um, and so in 2 Samuel 24, 24, he says that I am not going to make a sacrifice to the Lord that doesn't cost me something. Somebody in his kingdom said, King, take this threshing floor, use it for your purposes, I donate it. King's response, David says, No, because I can't make a sacrifice unless it costs me. This is important. So I look at that and I think, okay, well, how much... How much does my love of Jesus and the sacrificial love that I give him, is it really costing me? You know, I think this is a truth that we have to acknowledge. The cost is going to be relative to you and your specific situation. Why do I say that? 
Why is your cost going to be different from someone else's? Well, because everybody's heart is a little different. Everybody's will is a little different. And your situation is different. Where you're coming from, what you're doing. Some of you are well off. Some of you are poor. Some of you have a totally different dynamic in your life. So something you're doing as an act of worship to the Lord may cost you totally different than someone else. And this is the way it's talked about in the Gospels. Jesus sat down, Mark chapter 12, verses 41 through 44. And he says this, he sat down near the collection box at the temple so as he watched as the crowds dropped their money in the offering. That would be very weird if I were to give an offering today and Jesus was the one watching what I put in the offering. Does anybody else feel like that would be the most awkward offering ever taken in all of history? It's like, yes, the Lord of the universe who sees everything, knows our hearts, knows everything, is looking at you while you put your offering in. Is, is this good? Is this good? No? A little more, right? Or, or no? You, you want something different? What do you want? All of, okay. My children, please say my children. I will give them to you. You know, so I mean, whatever it is. I mean, it's kind of weird to think Jesus would be watching, but he, he did. So as he's watching and he's, and he's seeing all these rich people put large sums in, and then verse 42, and he sees the poor widow who comes and she drops in two small coins. Verse 33, Jesus calls his disciples to him. Hey guys, come over here, check this out. I want to tell you something that's true. This poor widow has given more than all the others who are making contributions. Why? Because a sacrifice is unique. It's correlated to you and to your situation. So $10 isn't $10 isn't $10 isn't it? No. For you, your $10 might be $1,000. For someone else, it might be 50 cents. You know, it's amazing. Um, I think about my situation and Matthew 6, 2 through 4 asks this question. When you give, what are you getting back? He goes on and says, and when you pray, what you getting back? I could, I could take that principle and I could apply it to a lot that I do. When I, when I come to church, what am I getting back? When, I'm, when I go out of my way to volunteer, what am I getting back? When I do something kind, what am I getting back? Oh man, there's a lot. Do, do yourself a... No, don't do it. Don't. If you don't want to have a, a miserably convicting time where you actually are stretched in your faith, please don't think about this in your own life. What do you get back from the things that you do? Take it back into your relationship. If you're married, what do you get back when you show kindness? I've heard one guy, and I, I kind of like this. He's like, you know, if you really want to be romantic and stuff like that, uh, don't think like a guy. Do the dishes. Yeah, you know, someone says, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I knew it worked. I, I, I knew it worked. And, uh, you know, and the funny thing is, is I, I try not to do it for what I get out of it. But at the same time, I'm very selfish. So I'm like, hmm, I think I want some loving. I'm going to do the dishes. <laughs> Why? Because I want to do the dishes? No, I want some loving. And, uh, you know, it's weird. It's the way our brains work. How do you deal with this? I really don't know. I'm trying to figure it out. It's, it's a miserable mess 
trying to let the Holy Spirit highlight in you how selfish you are. I'm trying to kind of make a list of the things that I do that, is, that are selfless. And a lot of the things I do, I do them because there's a large part of what I get back from it. Oof. How much does it cost you to worship this morning? How much of a cost did you feel getting up and doing the things that God's commanded, not forsaking getting together? I am saddened when I think about the majority of the church trends in America, how you can't build a church unless you make it comfortable for every person in the seat. You can't build a church unless you are like a buffet of need meeting, where you have to meet the individual needs of every needy baby. I'm, I'm sorry, Christian person. Why? Because we're all self-centered, like little babies. And I mean, that's natural, right? It's natural. Babies are babies until they grow up. My concern is, is we've created nurseries and incubators from coast to coast where you never are forced to grow up and start making self-sacrificing steps. Instead, you only want what you want, when you want it, in the way you want it. And if anything comes in a way you don't, you do. Now, why do I know this? I'm not preaching to you. I'm just going from personal experience. This is me. I have been in conferences and meetings, and I get done with the meeting, and somebody in my life or my wife or family, somebody, a friend says, hey, how was that meeting? Nine times out of ten, my reasons for saying what I say are selfish. I didn't get anything out of that. <laughs> Thanks for laughing. I mean, that's, I mean, that's so true. It's like, you know what? I, I wasn't fed. Oh, you didn't get you didn't feed you didn't get feeded. Mm -mm. I was not feeded. Um, I really didn't feel anything in the worship, <laughs> and it just shows you where my heart is at. And uh, so it's good for me to check my heart because worship should be costing me something. Prayer should cost me something. Taking steps to obey the Lord should cost me something. And um, it's very interesting. So I challenge you to think about that. And when it comes to costing us, I, I see in Romans chapter 5, 6 through 8, it says this. It says, when we were utterly helpless, Christ came and just at the right time, he died for us sinners. Now understand that most people would be willing to die for maybe an upright person, and someone might be willing to die uh, for a person who is especially good. But here's what God did. God showed us his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. Do you realize that that ties in with one of the first examples of uh, God testing the heart of a worshiper? He tells Abraham, are you willing to give me your very best? I want your only son. He was asking him a heart question. Will you hold back what is most dear and best? Or will you be willing to lay that down at the altar, the place of slaughter? And Abraham proved his love for the Lord by being willing to lay down his most precious things before the Lord. 
And he didn't, he wasn't being asked to do something that God didn't already in his heart determine to do. For before the foundations of the earth were laid, God the Father said, I have determined to lay my life down for the people who don't love me. That's beautiful. And so the Lord is asking us, if you want to worship me, if you want to come after me, you must be willing to what? Lay what is most dear down at the altar, the place of slaughter, and kill that living thing. What is that living thing? It is our self-life. If we want to sacrifice what is most dear, it is going to be your self-life. So you must walk away from the very things that you hold so precious your dreams, your desires, the comforts, all these things that motivate us, that, that stir us up. God will ask you at some point, can you lay that down? Can you sacrifice that? And if your answer is, that's too much, then we will be like the rich young ruler in the New Testament when he said, what must I do? And he said, lay this one thing down. And he went, that's too much. God's got to do some work in our heart so that we change and we are willing. Remember, cost, heart, and will. We've got to get to a place where we're willing to lay down the most precious of things. God didn't spare his best, and if he didn't spare his best, is there anything else he would withhold? I almost want to hear him ask us that this morning. Hey, if you will spare your best and keep it back for yourself, I've already told you what you'll get. You're going to lose the very best. But if you give me what is best, I will give you everything. Wow, that's amazing. So then I look in Malachi chapter 1, verses 8 through 9, and what I read, we're not going to go through it, but I'll tell you, what I read is that God's people were criticized because they no longer were bringing their best to God in sacrificial love and worship. They were bringing leftovers, what was easy, what was convenient, what was cheap. God doesn't want us to be cheap in our sacrifice. He doesn't want us to say, well, this doesn't cost me much, or it's a manageable cost. He wants us to be extravagant in what our costs are. And do you know the crazy thing is, it's the same way my wife thinks. She enjoys it if I'm making a sacrifice. And it doesn't matter if it's uh, something cliched or put on Pinterest. What really matters to her is if it was a sacrifice she knew was, it was costly for me. If it took my time, my focus, and I was involved, and I, I, I went without in one sense to make something happen, and then what that communicates to her is value, worth, and it, it gives something to her. Jesus is saying, will you do that for me? Will you stop giving me your leftovers? Will you give me your best? Because that's how we ascribe glory, honor, power to God. We give him our best. Wow. So then I come up with this great theology about cost. Let's not be tightwads. Let's not be tightwads. If we've freely been given, let us freely give. If we've not been cheated in any way with what God is promising and doing in our lives, well then let's us take off all restraints from what God wants out of us. Let's give it all freely back. And, and what would that do? Oh my goodness. I think it would just be amazing. 
think when we get to even the spiritual things like prayer and faith and gifts of the Spirit, if we're receiving things from the Lord and we're taking it all in for ourselves just to make our life more comfortable or better or us to experience healings, that's still self-centered faith, isn't it? And so if we're freely experiencing God's presence and all that kind of stuff, why wouldn't we flip that on its head and give that to other people? Everywhere we go and in every situation, be willing to give not of our silver and gold, but give what we do have that we can give freely. And there's a never-ending supply of the spirit moving in our life. Why not give that away to anybody and everybody? Pray for every single waitress if it's needed. Pray for every neighbor. Call down fire on that dog next door that keeps... Bar- no, I'm teasing. Sorry, I shifted, I shifted. You get what I mean, though. You know, if in the New Testament, the apostles said to the guy who was there at the gate, he's like, hey, man, silver and gold, we don't have any. But what we freely receive, we're going to freely give to you. I'm adding some words there. And so why don't you just take up your bed and walk? You know, I think we can start giving even of those things that we've received. So let's talk about the heart. Isaiah prophesied this in Isaiah 29, 13. He said, the people of God are like this. They uh, honor me with their lips, but their hearts have become far from me. So the words of the prophet said, okay, you keep doing what you call sacrifices of love, but my critique for you is your heart's not in it. Wow, my heart's not in it? Anybody know what that's like in a relationship? Hey, we're gonna go out on a date, but the heart's not in it? The date's kind of flat, isn't it? <laughs> I remember Petraea and I, our first date, it, it didn't stop. We like went on the date, and then when did we come back? It was like we went to Denny's. Denny's is, uh, anybody ever been to a Denny's diner? Denny's diner. I don't know if we have Denny's up here, do we? Do we have a Denny's? Oh, wait, on Oneida, don't we? Okay, that's not a, a ploy to go to Denny's on Oneida. Um, but we went to Denny's, and then we came back probably, I don't know, it was almost morning time. And, uh, and you know, not any time in that date was I going, man, I wish I could be somewhere else. My heart's just not in this. No. My whole heart was in this whole conversation. I was eager to talk and listen and to hear everything that was coming out of her mouth. I just wanted to know everything about her and everything that made her tick and all that kind of stuff. And I wanted to give her a big kiss, which didn't happen for a while. (laughs) And uh, and so I, I think when our hearts are not in what we're doing sacrificially for the Lord, he knows it. I think we know it. And I bet you even the people around us know it. Because I can see it in relationships. A kid who hates their parents. Oh man, your heart's not in this family, is it? No, I just can't wait for the second I'm out of this place. And you just look at their face and you just go, you hate everybody, don't you? You don't like anything or anyone and you're miserable. Why? Your heart's not in any of these relationships. Where is that heart then? Where is the place where your heart is in it? I don't know. Is it on the sports field? Is it in some other relationship? God, I think, is asking us if our heart is in our relationship with him. Um, I came across a story about a, uh, an idea of a loving relationship. And uh, I would ask you to think about this in terms of your relationship with the Lord. 
Would you describe a warm and loving relationship as one like this, that's described like this, where any expression of affection would never happen unless there was a transaction. Any expression of love or affection would not happen unless there was some kind of a transaction. What I mean is this. You don't get a kiss unless you give them a chocolate. You get one chocolate, you get one kiss. Oh, that's it. But you, two chocolates, maybe two kisses. But that's it. What if you were a friend and you had a party and everybody was there at your party and they loved being in your presence at the party only if you paid them to be there? And so any expression of love or affection or that only happened if there was a transaction. Is that the kind of loving relationship we would describe that God wants with each and every one of us? Then why would we go to him and pray and the only time we ever pray is when we want something? Why would we go to him in prayer when the only time we want to go is when we want to tell him why our life is so miserable? Why would we only want to go and worship God if we're down and we need to become happy? Why wouldn't we love him or be in his presence simply because we love him? Why wouldn't we be at the party just because we want to be in his presence? Why wouldn't we want to give him our kisses just because we love him, not because he gives us presents? That whole issue highlights something that's wrong with our hearts. The psalmist said, I was glad when they said, it's church time. Why? Because he got a prize? No, because he loved the Lord. And so there's an important heart issue in this generation. Not just young people. I mean everybody alive at this time. We must reassess, is our heart in our relationship with Jesus? We've left the issue of cost. Are you willing to give everything? Now we're on to, oh, is your heart in it? Whoo. Wow. I, I kind of think about this, that um, one of the biggest crises in my life, in my relationship with the Lord, how are we on time? We've got five minutes. Um, we got one more point after this, so we're getting close, getting close. And we got to take communion, dadgum. There's so much to do in one service. Um, so here's, here's what I've seen in my own relationship with the Lord. There came a time where my heart, I didn't understand my own heart in how it was relating to with the Lord. And maybe you're here this morning and you go, well, I don't really know. We always give ourselves the benefit of the doubt. We always look at ourselves through rose-colored glasses to say, well, you know, I trust my intentions. I trust my motives. Now, I'm not so sure about yours, but I know mine. They're good, or I'm at least going to give myself a break, you know. So it takes a work of the Holy Spirit to change us so that when we look at ourselves, we see what he's wanting us to see. So when the Lord opened my eyes and I saw truly how ungrateful and how disconnected I was with my love for the Lord, it broke me. There was something that happened in my heart. I realized I was so yucky that the only response that was acceptable was a brokenness in my heart. I felt horrible. And there's no other way to describe it. It's not feeling horrible but actually it felt kind of good or cleansing. No, it felt horrible. Tears, misery, I didn't feel like eating. I don't want to talk to anybody. I felt horrible, like my puppy just died. It was that bad. 
And yet that is the kind of heart condition that God says, if your heart's going to be in this relationship, I want you to know I'll never turn you away if you have a broken and a contrite heart. Because what that means is your heart is it's bendable, it's flexible to what I'm thinking and what I'm doing. It's beating now with me. But that doesn't happen unless there's a brokenness and a contriteness at the heart level. Wow. Whoo. I wonder if you've had that brokenness. And if it's been a while since that heart has moved, it might be stiff and it needs some new brokenness. What does that look like? You got to get them tears flowing again. You got to get that heart moving again. And that's the stuff that God says, oh, I like that. I like that. My issue was this. How many of you ever played the game Mercy where you have two people and you kind of lock your hands together? <laughs> yeah. Why, why are you so eager about that? He's like, yes, I always win. <laughs> right, Breaker? And Breaker's like, yeah, but I'll cheat. And, uh, no, and it's like, yeah, I do too. I, I stomp on the feet and everything. But, you know, it's, it's simply like this. It's, you know, two opponents come together, they lock hands, and they try and get the other person to cry mercy. Give by exerting pressure and force and all that and just causing pain. And then the weaker person at some point can't endure the pain anymore. They don't have any strength anymore. And then finally, they cry out, mercy. And see, this is the reality of what a lot of relationships with the Lord look like. We don't come to church in, until we are at the point of crying mercy. Why? Because the marriage stinks, the family stinks, the job stinks, life stinks. Mercy! And then we start to relate to the Lord. That is not a broken and a contrite heart. That is a brokenness, yes. But that is not the heart condition that God looks at and goes, yes, I love this. It is the heart condition that says, I have no external force pushing me to a place of desperation. Now we're leading to the third and final part, of my own will, I'm coming, and I'm yielding my heart to your heart. I am involved in this. I want this. Then you're not crying out mercy. You're crying out, I love you, I follow you, and he cries out mercy. He says, I'm giving you mercy. Why? Because you just give him your love. If you want it the other way, you're crying out mercy, and you're miserable, and you're desperate, and then you wonder if you're loved. It's much better to come to him with that soft heart crying out, I love you, and let him say, mercy, mercy, mercy. Oh, and it feels beautiful. So I, I want to wrap it up with this. I believe that our will is very important. I, uh, I want you to think of a wealthy businessman. A wealthy businessman who... Um, for many years, he had a beautiful wife, okay? And his beautiful wife thought, man, I have married the perfect person. Um, and the reason she thought this is because he was so amazing and thoughtful all the time. He would uh, send her flowers uh, at random times just to dote on her and, and let her know that she was valuable. And, uh, and, and then he would... Uh, he would do all kinds of other thoughtful things and, and he would never forget a birthday or an anniversary or a special occasion. In fact, it was like he went out of his way to make these elaborate plans so that she would almost feel like a princess. The best restaurants, the most elaborate kind of setups and all these different things. And uh, it was just amazing until the day 
she found out that this wonderful husband, she thought, had done all this stuff. He had never once initiated or thought up any of these things or was involved in any of them except for having told his secretary at the very beginning of that relationship, here's what I want you to do. I don't care what it is. I don't care what the cost is. You just do what I'm telling you to do. The issue is he was not willing to play a role in that relationship at all. He wanted somebody else to play that role for him. He wanted all the benefits, but he didn't want to be willingly involved. When I think about that, I go, Lord, I don't want that ever to be me or any of us in this room. I don't want us to pay a professional to love Jesus for us. That's good. I don't want somebody that is more spiritual than us to make up the difference for my lack of sacrificial love. Oh. And so I look at this and I think, Lord, I want to willingly pay the cost. And I don't want to be a tightwad. And I want my heart to be broken in a contrite heart. And I want it to be involved in this relationship. And, and, and I'm not being made to do it. I'm not being paid to do it. I choose it. And I don't want someone else to choose it for me. I want to choose it. I think this is important for us to think on because 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 3 says, in those last days when it's terrible, it's going to be marked by this trait that people will be lovers of themselves. People will be lovers of themselves. And so the question is, if we are in terrible times, how do we know who is a lover of themselves and who is willingly laying down that sacrifice their heart's involved or the cost is, it, no, they're not sparing any expense. I came across an illustration. In 1348, the bubonic plague in Europe was raging. During this time, almost half of Europe's population died from the plague. Here's what happened during the plague though. It was spreading so fast that if a family member began to detect something from the plague, it was so common, all the death, that anyone else in relationship with that person, <clears throat> without any consideration to that person, they would leave the person immediately. So if your kid contracted some disease, most of the family would scatter. Everybody would leave immediately. In the community, if you were the family that suddenly started to show signs, then everybody else would leave immediately. This, this actually extended in all areas of society, but the one that I wanna highlight is this. In the priesthood in Europe, this is what they found. The priests would no longer offer service or prayers or ministry to anyone that showed the signs of the bubonic plague. And so most of the priesthood would do the same thing that the rest of the society would. They would alienate them. And so these individuals would die without any food or care and totally alone. We think we know what that's like because of our time during COVID. We didn't know anything like this. 
half of the population dying, and you could imagine that most of them died alone without anyone around. And when those priests were asked to come and minister, they would reject it too. This situation gave rise for a statement that I believe is a way we test ourselves today. They said at the end of the plague that the good priests died in the plague and only the bad ones survived. If we are living in terrible times, I believe the good hearts that are willing and broken and contrite, the good Christians who are laying down a sacrificial love at the altar, they're going to die. I'm not talking literally. I'm talking that living thing called self is going to die. And you'll see all the illustrations of that. They will be dead to self. And they are going to be different from those that protect self. And at the end of this season of terrible times, I believe at Christ's return, you will see those that go into eternity are those that died to self. Those that end are those that protected self at all costs. And my challenge to you this week is die to self. Die to self. Look very intently in the areas of your interests. Die to your interests and put someone else first. Philippians 2.4. Look at your time. Die to the, the from holding so tightly to your time and why don't you throw that away and start picking up the burden of someone else's needs. You give your time to them. It's our most precious commodity most often. I'll tell you that, that's important. Look at your money. Stop penny pinching so much to try and make everything work and go after all that you feel is important. Instead, when God says, um, I'm highlighting a brother in need, a sister in need, hold nothing back. Try and help out. And when it comes to what matters to your life and to my life, just know we've got to die to what we want and be more considerate of others. So I want us to look intently on what we do and how it affects other people. This is important for us. And as we do that, let's stand together. And I want to dismiss you to come to either side of the altar. And we're going to take communion together. I'm uh, going a couple minutes over, but you'll forgive me. Sacrificial love. Boy, it's what we're celebrating today, isn't it? In communion, Jesus willingly chose to lay his life down for people who didn't love him, didn't even know him yet. He willingly chose it. As you're preparing to take communion, I want you to just search your heart. Maybe the Holy Spirit's been speaking to you already. Don't take communion if you aren't willing to lay your life down. Don't take communion if you're not willing to follow him. And if you've been struggling in that area, then just confess it. Don't deny it. Don't dismiss it. Just It's quick prayer. Just say, Lord Jesus, forgive me for being so self-centered. I, I, I don't want to be like that. And just and turn from that selfish kind of way.
Lord. I'm reminded of something that I said last week, but I want to highlight it again so we don't forget it. If we refuse to kill self, then what we're doing is we're limiting what God can do in our life. But the more that we die to self, we're actually giving God more real estate in our life. He can do more with what you're giving to Him in sacrifice. If you're giving Him His heart and you're delighting in Him willfully, Bible tells us He will give you the desires of your heart. Can anybody say amen to that? But the key for that kind of a life is you've got to deny self. God is very faithful. He will never let you go without. He will provide for your every need. He dresses the flowers. He feeds the birds. You do not have to worry about your provision. If you are in submission to God and God's ways, He will take care of you. But boy, it it requires a denial of self, doesn't it? Man, these are some good things. I also think it's amazing how when we come to the Lord and it's not with strings attached, God, you deliver, you heal, you change me, or I won't serve you, or I won't be faithful. It changes the whole dynamic. When you say, I'm going to love you, I'm going to serve you, I'm going to worship you, and it doesn't depend on my circumstance. When you begin praising God, and it doesn't matter what's in your bank account, or what you feel in your physical body, or all that stuff, man, that's when God does what you could never imagine he begins to break through and do amazing things in your life. Wow. It's incredible, but when you lose your life for God's sake, you find the most beneficial and overwhelmingly good life. I want us to go ahead and uh, I think we're just about finished with uh, getting the communion. If we're out over there, there's still some over here, I believe. But we're going to sing, and I'm going to release you to take some communion together, and I want to just pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you today for your sacrificial love, that no greater love than this, that you would lay your life down for us. God, there's no greater love. And this morning, as we take this communion, we remember your body that was beaten and bruised for our sins, our iniquities, whipped for our healing. Lord Jesus, you did all that willingly. You did that. That was the greatest cost. And God, your blood was shed. You died so that we would have eternal life. And I want to thank you, God, for that. And in this place, would you work in our hearts? Give us a new heart as we remember everything you've done for us. Give us your kind of heart that we would love you, that we would love one another sacrificially. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Go ahead and take communion. As we sing, you're going to be dismissed. And if you want prayer, I want you to come on down. But man, know this. God is on the move in our lives. There are good things he's about to do. Don't get left behind. 
Amen. Pursue Jesus. Run after Him. Don't you get discouraged. Your faith is going to be rewarded. All right. Bless you. Get out of here. Thank you for Yeah.